Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we took a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 27th, 2020? Yes, this is our episode... No, Brennan. What? You have to say 2020. Oh, this is the last time I get to say it. Yeah. <laughs> 2020. There you go. Indeed. And I was going to say, this is episode 202, In and tw- it's the last one of 2020. 2020. Big days for twos and zeros. Yeah, it's been hard for me not to write episode 2020, but it's going <laughs> to oh. be a few more years until we reach that. I'm not ready to acknowledge that. <laughs> but... Yeah, we are moving forward with our new structure. So if you kind of missed the last couple of weeks, we're changing up a little bit. Brendan watches half of the shows. I watch half the shows and we present them to each other. Yeah, we divide the shows rather than you say half the shows. It's like I watch the first 30 minutes. You watch the Roughly, last Listen, this yeah, is yeah. a partnership. We take <laughs> turns doing the third show. We do. We do even an odd minute numbers so i watch the first minute you watch the second minute that would be insane i don't want to be a part of any kind of partnership like that (laughs) (laughs) it really it's almost like a three-legged race you know left leg right leg left leg no thank you that's too much all right so to start us off we're going to begin with what we're calling quality or questionable kind of similar to highlight low light yeah i call it i call it best and worst that's what it is in my head but Okay, Naomi, tell me, what is a quality moment that stood out to you? So, oh, first of all, which shows did you listen to? Oh, right, of course. So I watched Face the Nation, which was hosted by Margaret Brennan, and I watched State of the Union, which sometimes on holiday weeks, there's like a substitute host, which was the case for State of the Union, and that was hosted by Dana Bash. What'd you watch? So I took a look at Meet the Press, I looked at Fox News Sunday, and I looked at This Week. Any substitute hosts? Yes. Fox News Sunday had a substitute host, Mike Emanuel. And then on this week, we had John Carl hosting. So my quality moment is actually the Holiday Book Club on Face the Nation. Now, usually I'm a Uh little... We're skeptical. Yeah, I'm usually pretty eye-rolly. And even in previous years, I'm like, oh, wow, what a filler segment. And they love tradition on Face the Nation. And they've been doing this, I think, since like the history of Face the Nation or, or I don't know, a very long time. So I was all ready to kind of dismiss it, but it was actually really, really well done. It had four panelists. It had Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, who uh, they're kind of a Washington reporter powerhouse couple. They're the co-authors of the book, The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker III. I don't really understand how either of these people had time to write a book, even with their partner being their co-writer. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. They're so busy. But anyway, they wrote a book. And then the other two panelists were Isabel Wilkerson. She had a book that came out this year called 
cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Oh, yeah. I heard a lot of good things about yeah, that Yeah, it's book. supposed to be phenomenal. Like, you know, changing your outlook on so much. Yes, exactly. And the last one is John Meacham's new book, which is His Truth is Marching on, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. And like I said, I was I was really ready to be really dismissive about it, but it was really, really well done. And I think there's a few reasons for it. One, all these people really respect the heck out of each other, which I I don't think people actively hate each other on, on the <laughs> panels or even on book club, but they found value in the other's work yeah. and played off of each other and was like, that's a really interesting point and that's why I'm talking about this or this is how that, that impacts each other. And I found that really interesting. They weren't just kind of like waiting for their like two minute opening to talk about their book. It was kind of the interplay of race in America, politics in our country, and what it really means to lead. It was really a reflection of the group dynamic, I think is what I'm trying to say. So I have a few examples of some quality moments for me. The first one is Isabel Wilkerson, which I mentioned again is uh, the new cast book. And she talks about how, while a lot of people think the 2016 election and the subsequent administration was about a breaking of norms and institutions. She implies that it was the reinforcing of institutions and values from our country's worst moments. Ah, interesting. And the reason why I speak about hierarchy and caste is because this is part of our inheritance, an inheritance of of this uh, hierarchy that um, that dates back to the time of enslavement, uh, that has been that essentially was in place for far longer than it was not in place in our country from Jim Crow, uh, which only ended in the 1960s, and how we live with the after effects of that, and it falls upon each of us to learn the history and to uh, to be able to reckon with it. I'm interested in this uh, idea, though, of what you were describing as um, a caste system because. In at least political narrative, the past four years have been about disruption. They've been about breaking apart systems. They've been about, um, you know, trying to break apart the establishment in particular. But you have a very different view, right? You, you think and have pointed to the 2016 election in particular as about reinforcing those caste systems. Well, you know, a caste system essentially is an artificial, uh, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value, and it dates back to the time of enslavement. And so we've inherited the assumptions, the stereotypes, uh, the rankings that are have been have essentially been assigned to people based upon what they look like, which goes back to the time of enslavement. And I, I want to take a, a moment to remind ourselves of how long this has been a part of our country, uh, that it's a foundation of the uh, power structure that we have inherited. So I have heard of the cast book, but I haven't picked it up yet. I haven't perused it yet. And it just really got me thinking about, I don't know, that comment, that last comment that the 2016 election is not about disruption. It's about holding on, really. It has been a real kind of snow globe shake where the whole the whole image changes in terms of how we think about the entire political narrative of President Trump. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very, very different way to think about where we are and what this means. And it reminds me a little bit of something that I heard literally today while I was listening to the uh, HBR podcast, the Harvard Business Business Review podcast called After Hours, which has finally returned after so long hiatus. Big fan of that show. 
and they were talking about their predictions for 2021. And they were talking about the way the U.S. is viewed in the world and the way we see ourselves. There was a, an assumption that we had broken through and left behind a lot of that Jim Crow era of the past. And we were in a new, a new world and a new place and that the country was was just so different. And then Trump reminds us, actually, it's not that those those strains that are have been so negative and corrosive to the country are still with us in a large, large way. Yeah, they're stronger than most people want to give them credit. Yeah, absolutely. But speaking of Jim Crow era, John Meacham was on, like I said, and he has a new book about John Lewis. And I think what I appreciate, I, I don't know, I sometimes I feel a little apprehensive whenever there's like a presidential historian and then the host is just like, explain to us what this moment means, please. Oh, my God. Meacham has made a career out of being that guy. Yeah, literally that guy. And so I was just like, oh, great, Meacham. But he actually had some really insightful comments about the legacy of John Lewis, how fresh that work has been and what it means to other people, and really thinking about your spiritual values and how you live it and represent it civically here in this country, too. And in this clip, you'll hear Margaret Brennan start this conversation with John Meacham and where she describes the moment in which the entire country saw young John Lewis try to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, with the other peaceful protesters. You said when that footage was shown to the country, there was revulsion all over America. Revulsion, then redemption. Is there anything more American? Right now in America, we have revulsion that Isabel just described again at what happened. Are we at the point of redemption yet? Well, redemption is a complicated thing, and uh, that's something that we have to work on every day. Uh, John Lewis represents, I think, uh, faith in two fundamental forces in life. He was on that bridge because of a faith in God, and he was on that bridge because ultimately of a faith in America. Uh, Frederick Douglass once said, there is no soil so conducive to the growth of reform as American soil. And so there is, pro progress is possible. And uh, John used to say when people would say, well, nothing's ever changed, he would say when he was uh, a senior member of Congress, come walk in my shoes. <laughs> now that's easy for me to say. I'm a white Southern male Episcopalian. Uh, things tend to work out for me in this country. I wrote this book and I wanted to profile John Lewis because he represents the embodiment of the best that the religious impulse can play in our public life. And more than any other person I've ever known, he closed the gap between a profession of allegiance to the lessons of the Sermon on the Mount with the practice of those virtues. And I think if we look at stories of people who walk among us and who just walked among us, and we see what they did, and they did something so remarkable, that should give us some faith, some inspiration, that we can do the same. I like this example of the work of John Lewis to help us understand how we do move forward, how we move forward from a place of hate and hostility and anger and violence to feel motivated and inspired to still do good work and to find and create progress, right? And yeah. 
it's it's so easy to stay in the anger and it's so easy to stay in the painful mental state of so-and-so was wrong to me, so-and-so is wrong forever, or, you know, whatever the issue might be. And at least here politically, I think using John Lewis's approach in terms of living his values and fighting for his values in a civic space is the great example uh, that I think we need in terms of thinking of like, okay, the past four years have been a mess. Like, what do we want moving forward? Not even just like, I'm a Democrat and how do I move, like let go of, of Republicans who voted for Trump. But even beyond that, like there's been so much dysfunction for years in the last four years, even during presidential Obama's term, like what do we want from our government and how do we fight for those tangible, measurable benchmarks, right? And, you know, and I'm someone who has lots of complicated feelings about faith and the role of church and and spirituality. But when someone can use their faith for good in a productive way, in a way that doesn't hurt other people, like that's when I am like the most hopeful in terms of how institutions of faith can make better people that are better for everyone. And and you just don't see like real tangible examples of that too often. Well, what, you know, this this really does get me thinking. And, you know, at first it might seem like revulsion and redemption, you know, we're just alliterating on R and 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 trying to be very biblical in our in our conversation about things that happen all the time. But if you really dig into it as Meacham kind of, you know, invites us to in this quote, it gets me to thinking about the you know the changes we've seen in our time right the progress we've seen in our time and you think about what types of progress we have seen right i mean within our lifetimes you know beginning in the 80s you know you look you look back at some you know especially during the holidays you're sometimes watching older movies and you see the way women are treated and you see the way minorities are treated or non-existent right and you think wow, that really was a different time. You know, go watch, we were just watching, you know, the movie Ghostbusters. That's an incredibly sexist movie. <laughs> it's so unbelievable. The original, yeah. yeah, the original. And and people don't even recognize how different the world is now. You know, certainly there's been Me Too and we've had Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all these different, you know, signs of progress. Right. But just culturally, that's been a huge thing. You look at, gay marriage in this country and how it was hugely controversial to the point that Obama wouldn't even admit beyond civil unions when he ran for president. And then during his presidency, it was everywhere. And so we've seen lots of progress, but I think what's missing a little bit and what existed in the time of John Lewis was that in that example of revulsion of people watching the television and seeing this brutal, vicious beating by the police, by the National Guard, by authorities of these peaceful protesters, pretty much everyone in suits walking across a bridge quietly and praying and being beaten on camera. On national television. Yeah. It, 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 there's so much revulsion. And yet what, what John Lewis and Martin Luther King were able to do was to channel that revulsion into a positive vision for reform and then put the necessary pressure on a president to enact that 
reform into legislation, right. which became like, the Civil Rights Act. Right. There's so many moving pieces that then kind of connect to the next one, connects to the next piece. And it, it's not just like one magic check mark, right? But you have to collaborate. You have to talk to people. You have to negotiate. You have to strategize. Like Yes, you have to have a plan. Y- yeah, like all those things matter. It's not just the revulsion and then you flip a coin and then it's redemption. Exactly. Like the, all the work in between. And we have seen time and again over the last decade or two where movements sparked by revulsion have have grown, have gained lots of eyeballs and anger and frustration in the public, and then nothing happens. Two that come straight to mind are the Occupy Wall Street protests yeah. that took place, and then there was no platform and there was no goal. There was no vision for reform, and that was never turned into legislation. And then the other example, and I guess there's two other ones, right? There were the two terrible shootings that happened, one during Obama's tenure when all those children were killed in Newtown, and and there was no action that came of that. On a federal level. Yep. And that's true. There have been, been a lot of lot state... of work. A lot of incredible work at, work at the yes. state level. And maybe I should I should hold my tongue on that one. But then the other example would be, and we're, we'll see what happens, is what happened during the summer with the death of George Floyd. And that, that's kind of spoken about by Isabel, Isabel Wilkerson earlier in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, how is that channeled into into reform? Yeah. And there's a bigger political world. Susan Glasser and Peter Baker were there kind of tying these themes of of progress and of change and really thinking, what does this mean for both parties once Joe Biden is sworn in? So very, very interesting conversation. I was pleasantly surprised with this holiday book club. And I like, I really want to pick up all of these books now. So <laughs> job well done. Brendan, what's your quality slash highlight slash best moment? Well, just as I go into that, I just want to say a final thing is it'd be wonderful if we could get to reform, redemption, and change without it having to get to revulsion, right? Absolutely. Maybe something could just be a little annoying, and then we fix it. That would be great. It'd be great if our institutions don't have to get to the point of absolute disaster <laughs> before we... I don't know. know. That wouldn't be on theme with 2020. Yeah. But again, Brennan, highlight, best moment, quality moment, whatever you want to call it. That would be Meet the Press. So Meet the Press chose to have a special episode this year as they did, as they do in previous years in this holiday episode between the two holidays. And what they did this year was they looked at Joe Biden, president-elect, incoming. He hasn't been on a lot of Sunday shows. He was on a bit, but he wasn't on a lot. And he hasn't been, certainly, since he won the election. But it's time to take a moment, they thought, and review who he is and what he stands for and what a Biden presidency will indeed look like, because it will be here one month from now, he will be president, right? So what they did was a clips show, very similar to what we did when uh, Harris became VP and we had right. a special episode looking back. So here's a little bit from that clip discussion, some of those clips that we heard and then the discussion of the panelists around it. This Sunday, what kind of president will Joe Biden be? Faith in our institutions held. The integrity of our elections remains intact. We take a look at what Joe Biden has said through the years and on the campaign trail. Do you think that there is a modern 
right-wing conspiracy that has aligned against this president? No, I don't think there's a modern right. I think the Republican Party has been taken over by the Tea Party. It happens. Those things happen. My party was taken over by the far left when I got elected in 1972. We need a strong Republican Party, a party that there's two or three or four people when they're not in office or if they have a president when he's in office can speak for the party, can make agreements. That's what we need. So that was just one one of the clips I wanted to highlight there. It was an interesting question by David Gregory, former host of Meet the Press. And in it, Joe Biden's talking about Republicans during the time of Obama and his his like wish that Republicans had some cohesion so that they could make a deal with someone and it would stick. Right. And if you remember, there was there were so many problems they had with Speaker John Boehner because Boehner couldn't really hold his party together. He would want to work with Obama and find solutions and then the tea party within his own caucus would revolt and he wouldn't be able to hold everything together so there's joe biden lamenting that but talking about the importance of a strong republican party a lot of these clips gave me the sense that like joe biden has really been pretty consistent in the way he thinks about the roles of the republicans and the democrats and really the highlight for me i thought it was going to be all the clips it was actually what chuck todd brought to the conversation during the panels he had a number of panelists there claire mccaskill john sununo these are former public officials and he also had Kristen wilker but it was chuck todd who brought the most insight to the conversation take a listen to to just these insightful insightful bits that he that he introduced as topics of discussion here's what Barack Obama wrote about meeting with congressional leaders in his uh, recent memoir. I became accustomed to the ritualistic quality of our joint meetings. The four of them would take care not to show their cards or make firm commitments. Their comments often sprinkled with thinly veiled recrimination directed at their counterparts. All of them unified only in their common desire to be somewhere else. Now, he is writing of that of those four people at the time. One can't help but wonder, Kristen, if the President Obama himself didn't enjoy those meetings. That is the exact opposite tact of Joe Biden. You know, Claire McCaskill, going back through our recent presidents, uh, there's not been one in my lifetime that actually likes Congress. They love every one of them complained about it. You have to go back to LBJ who seemed to love working with Congress, right? Knew how to love the Senate. Biden is more like an LBJ in his love for the Senate. Can he use that to actually get things done? Johnson Inu, uh, we've seen it already. Um, Washington's favorite new odd couple is going to be Joe and Mitch. You can see these headlines here. It is going to be the most important relationship at Washington. It was interesting. Here's what McConnell put in his book uh, about why he preferred working with Biden over Obama. Uh, and, he, and he wrote this. The reason we could get a deal done and that I could work with Joe was that we could talk to each other. I could tell him how far we could go and how he would reciprocate. Unlike Obama, Joe made no effort to convince me that I was wrong or that I held an incorrect view of the world. He just simply took my politics as a given and I did the same. I've heard this critique before um, from some senators, even Democratic ones, regarding President Obama, regarding President Bush. Um Senators want to be taken at the, at face value, do they not? So yeah, I just found these little insights where Chuck Todd went to his bookshelf and, and pulled out the quotes. You know, there's a lot of people who like to, you know, with a very 
easy political shorthand to say, oh, the Biden administration is just an extension of the Obama administration. But actually, in the way it works, it's very, very different. And as Chuck Todd points out here, this is a major shift to have a president who really does like Congress and likes dealing with Congress and has those skills directly at a time when it's going to be really, really important to make that work. So I just I just found Chuck Todd's insights and what he brought to the table to be the most insightful, way beyond what anyone else brought and even beyond some of the clips that they had chosen. And this is like the great episode to do that, right? Yeah. Like you've talked to so many people, you've covered this election through and through, talked to all the candidates, you've been having conversations with Joe Biden for years. Like if you're not going to give your own thoughts in an episode like today's, then like when the heck are you? Right. Or pull the pull the string together, right? right. Tie the knots together and exactly. say, here's, here's, here's a way to think about this. Right. And I think I get it. Like some journalists want to be like, quote unquote, objective or whatever. But like, there's a reason they gave you the chair, yeah. you know, and this is the time to use it. Yeah. I mean, this you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what ideally political journalism should strive for. Not always being the person who breaks the scoop or even the person who gets the tiniest little minute detail uh, of a story, but the person who's able to say, okay, yeah, there's a lot of detail out there. Yeah, you've seen a lot of breaking news alerts, you know, pop up on your screen and, you know, you've seen a lot of headlines, but here's something that makes this unique. Here's why it's different. Here's why it matters. That's what we're looking for. And for Chuck Todd to say, here's where Biden is going to be different from every other president we've seen before. It's not just because he's older. It's because he will approach these things from a different perspective. You know, that's what we, we, we really wanted to understand about Trump when he had kind of won and was, was beginning to win the primary, the Republican primary. It's like, what does he have? What is it about him that makes him different? Or how is he going to govern differently from other other Republican presidents? You know, we were trying to get a sense of what that was. And if you can paint that picture for people earlier so that they have that easy, you know, mental heuristic or that way of like approaching the 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 topic, kind of like what you just played with John Meacham, right? This this way of thinking about the world and in, in movements as revulsion and redemption. I think that's really the types of insight that we're striving for, especially on a Sunday show that only comes on once a week and is trying to make sense of where we've been and where we're going for the week ahead. I mean, they're really covering two weeks of time, right? They've got 40 minutes to cover two weeks to cover the week before and the week ahead. That's not a lot of time. So you better make sure it's filled with insight and not just minutia or minutian. <laughs> okay. I, I had a feeling you were going to take that somewhere. And I was like, where's it going? We're, oh, oh, it's there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There was some talk of Mnuchin today. Yeah. Naomi, why don't you tell me about your questionable moment? So my quality moment was face the nation. My questionable moment is also face the nation. Uh-oh. Was it another book? <laughs> I'm not reading that book. No, just kidding. <laughs> so... Earlier in the show, kind of in the top half of the hour, Margaret Brennan spoke to Frank Figluzzi. He is a former assistant director for counterintelligence for the FBI. And she had him there really as an expert guest 
to talk about and give context and help us understand what we know and what we don't know about this Nashville bombing that took place over the weekend. There was a substantial bombing. There was, we now know that it was for sure the remains that were found at the scene were that of the suspect. And it seems to be like a statement bombing more than anything that caused a lot of property damage, but didn't cause any other casualties. There was like a weird, ominous warning that sounded from the car. And and at the time it went off at 630 in the morning when people wouldn't be around. Right. I mean, it was in the morning when nobody would be around. And there was like sound, like a, a tape recording from the car telling people to like move away. Yeah. So clearly it was a statement. Now. And an and an effort to mess up the the communications in right. Tennessee, which are still yeah are still affected because it yeah. was at the AT and T building. Mm-hmm. What I want to talk about is what Margaret Brennan did or was trying to do here in this interview. Now I understand that you can't always get the current FBI assistant assistant director who is investigating this right now. Right, you can't always get the people who are directly either part of negotiating some big legislative package or aren't part of, you know, some big criminal investigation. Like, they're not directly tied to the meat of the story, but you want someone who you can ask questions to understand the story to begin with. Yep. That is helpful. And that is different than if you were to ask questions to someone who is part of that story, who is actively working on it. And what frustrated me here is that Margaret Brennan tried to do both in this interview, and it felt highly inappropriate. So the first example I want to show is actually a good example, a good question of how you can use an industry thought leader to help us understand a complicated situation. In this example, a counterintelligence expert helping us understand a bombing. You know, the governor of Tennessee described this as an attack, and he said it was a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. It blew up not just that RV, but it decimated at least 41 buildings in the surrounding area. How easy is it to make a bomb of that scale and do it underneath the radar without law enforcement knowing this threat was there? Yeah, I think this is a wake-up call and a warning for all of us uh, about how vulnerable our infrastructure is, how relatively easy it is for a single individual to do this. Now, we've concentrated post 9-11 on on getting our hands around all the chemical companies, mass orders of precursors for known explosives, and look what an individual can do on his or her own when they simply amass quantities of things that are under the radar screen. So here's the takeaway with this. The public has to be extremely vigilant about those around them that are talking about acting out or that might be able to do this. Shop owners and companies who are seeing smaller orders of precursors. That's where our vulnerability our vulnerability is. And, and Margaret, the, the notion of a copycat seeing what's happened in Nashville and trying to do this themselves is very real. And we should be concerned about that. Now, I thought that was extremely valuable insight to understand how atypical it is for someone to be able to really amass the ingredients the of whatever chemical things i don't know i don't know bomb things but to get the pieces that he would need to make such a significant home bomb yeah without raising red flags that were you know they're scrutinizing that and have been scrutinizing it for decades since oklahoma city exactly and since obviously 9-11 so in this question margaret brennan wants 
Big Luzi to explain why this is shocking, not just because it happened, but the fact that it could to begin with or and, and the how of it all. So that's how you use a thought leader. Take a listen to this next question, which was a couple questions later, and, and pay particular attention as to how she's trying to use his expertise this time around. CBS is reporting this morning that witnesses told investigators the uh, individual here we're talking about, Mr. Warner, may have had an issue with 5G technology and online conspiracy theories stemming from it. Um, To you, is that discernible intent here? And when you were talking about trying to figure out what motivates him and copycats, what are you most concerned about going forward? This is a pretty tense time in the country. Yep, I don't have to tell you we're living in an incredibly uh, politically charged environment. There's tremendous dangerous polarization and it's being fueled by social media conspiracy theorists out there. And yes, I'm aware that there are groups and individuals who seem to think that 5G technology might be the cause of COVID, um, that technology generally is targeting us. Um, You'll find almost anything um, imaginable and unimaginable online. And it may be that this is help, uh, partially what drove this individual. And that's why we, we need to speak the truth about what 5G is, where COVID came from, and all of this. But all of that increases the possibility of a copycat operator. And we've got to be extremely vigilant as we move into the next couple of weeks, where yeah. we're going to see the yeah. nation increasingly polarized about election results and a coming inauguration. <laughs> I don't know. Like, she literally asks him, to you, is that discernible intent here? This 5G conspiracy. How the heck does this man know what is the possible intent of this suspect? Right. Or alleged suspect at this point? Yeah. It is completely inappropriate. He doesn't have any connection to the active investigation. Yeah, I mean, he has friends. It's not they're they're opening the files to him. It's just, I think what really, really bothered me here is that It put the onus on me as a viewer to be like, this question is valuable. This question is valuable. This question is not valuable. Why is she asking this? This is not distracting. That was a dumb question. I didn't like that. Oh, this part is valuable. That is a lot of work and effort that you're putting on your viewer. The the burden should not be that high. It's (laughs) unacceptable. Of course, we want to be critical media consumers in general. Of course, of course. But... Like the range of value from one end to the other was so vast. Like I just felt so, I don't know, annoyed about like the level of concentration and focus I had to do during this interview to pull the most valuable pieces and be like, okay, this helps my broader understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no way he can know right now what the what the person's intent was or not, especially since... At the time of this recording, they didn't even confirm who the person was yet, right? So well, they had identified him, but they hadn't. As a suspect, right? Yeah, he was a person of interest at that point, right? But how can you know what his intent is? Right, exactly. And it's like this is not that it's low stakes because you know domestic terrorism is not low stakes, but this wasn't a situation in which. There were many more lives in jeopardy or there's some giant legislative bill that's kind of in a perilous state or (laughs) whatever. But if you're willing to do this for this type of story, which is kind of like a basic there's a crisis, it's there's some 
criminal action. We're looking for someone. What does it mean? Like, that's kind of what they teach in Journalism 101 your freshman year of college, right? Like, get the facts, share it, give some context. Yeah. But so if you're willing to kind of use one witness or, or one expert in multiple ways for a story like this, then it questions, it makes me question your judgment. And I feel like it makes me want to, I don't know, like just have a higher threshold for how I can value Margaret Brennan interviews if she's willing to do this. Like, it's just such a dumb mistake to make in such a like low bar but setting. Does that, does that make sense? I feel like I'm not saying this very well. I just feel no, like. No, I know what you're saying. But the thing is. She's not the first one to make it, and we've no, seen of it before. Not. I mean, I called it out recently where Jake Tapper was at, and, and it happens all the time, right? Here's a good example. I won't even name Jake Tapper. He did it <laughs> recently. I think it was last week as it related to the coronavirus, right? He wanted to ask questions about vaccine rollout, and he was talking to somebody who wasn't in charge of that. He was talking to the head of the FDA oh, who's right, not right, right. in yeah, charge yeah, of that, yeah. right? Uh-huh. However, we see this all the time from the Sunday shows where they have... Somebody on, and this happened throughout Trump's administration, and they're it's maybe, not their preferred booking. maybe the Treasury Secretary or they're the whatever secretary. Yeah. And then they're asked about this Trump tweet related to something totally different. Or they're asked about something else that the Trump administration is doing. It's like as a representative. Yeah, as a representative administ- Trump of the Trump administration, answer this, answer that, answer this. And it's like, well, they don't have expertise in that. Yeah. You know? They have zero context or or zero they don't know any more than your producers do. Right. And they work in a different building on the other side of town. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like it's not like they're members of a five person team that <laughs> right, shares right. an office. Yeah. You know, they're they're not. That's not the case. Yeah. And to act like they are is is not is misrepresenting things to your viewers. Just and it makes like, it seem as like, oh, they're being cagey. And it's like, what is there to be cagey on? He like he's never even like met that other person that you wish you would have talked to or whatever. Right. right. So yeah. It yeah, happens. You're right. It happens a lot, and it's it's a waste of time. Yes, it's yes, a, it's an absolute waste of time. I know it happens. Any, I don't know why I got so flustered about it, but it really, really freaking bothered bothered me. I think because we hold these journalists to a very high standard. I know, I know. You're right. Okay, Bruno, what's your questionable slash low light slash worst moment? So I'd like to say this is a small thing, but it's not a small thing. <laughs> so this is actually something that we should not be accepting any longer. And yet it is continuing. It's continuing through the end of the year. And this is inconsistent messaging around the coronavirus from the experts, members of the task force. I want to start with Anthony Fauci. This comes from the episode of this week. However, Fauci was not on this week. This was just a clip from it. But take a listen to what Fauci is saying here. I would think that you would need somewhere between 70, 75, maybe 80 percent of the population vaccinated. If we get that, we would develop a umbrella of immunity that would be able to protect even the vulnerables who have not been vaccinated or those in which the vaccine has not been effective. You can get that kind of immunity with that percentage of people. Dr. Fauci there on how much of the American population needs immunity to the coronavirus for life to return to normal. Okay, so there's something we heard from Dr. Fauci there. Now, the careful listener might 
notice that there's something a little odd about that. Actually, there's two things odd about that. Number one is that the number is a little different from what we've heard in the past. The number we heard in the past was 70%. And the other thing that's odd is that Fauci is saying that that's the amount of people that need to be vaccinated. Whereas in the past, we heard that that was how many people needed to have immunity. Right, and that big you difference. Could, right, you could combine vaccinated people with the tens of millions of Americans who have already had and now have some form of immunity against COVID-19. So there's two big inconsistencies in what we've heard in the past. But just to underscore that, take a listen to Fox News Sunday's episode where they had Admiral Brett Gerwas of the Coronavirus Task Force answer this same sort of question. It feels like we're waiting for the point when the United States gets to herd immunity. What's your current estimate? So um, herd immunity, when we get to herd immunity, um, that is when the pandemic is essentially over. Now, there could be pockets in certain places where there are uh, vaccine hesitancy and people don't get vaccinated. Um, the, the truth is nobody knows exactly the number. But based on mathematical models as we have it right now, it is somewhere between 70 and 80% of individuals having gotten the vaccine or having gotten the natural infection. Now, obviously we want to develop herd immunity by people getting the vaccine uh, because they're at no risk of ill health effects or spreading it to other individuals. Somewhere in that 70 to 80% range is probably the sweet spot. So there's Jirwa providing that important piece of information that it can be combined with people who have already had COVID-19 and have some natural immunity. This is a big difference. It's not a small thing. According to Bloomberg's COVID-19 vaccine tracker, the U.S. has now administered 1.9 million doses of the vaccine. Sounds like a lot, but the population of the U.S. is over 300 million people. So that is not even 1% of the U.S. population. And this has been going on for at least two solid weeks now. So the difference between vaccinating, you know, 30 to 60 more million people is a big difference. That's an inconsistency. But it's not the only inconsistency we saw this week. It's just really just the tip of the iceberg. Because we also saw one of the most concerning pieces of inconsistency related to what we should expect following the holiday season. Take a listen to what General Giroir says about community cases and community rates of COVID-19 that we're seeing right now. And this is in the context of getting children vaccinated. Um, so it is safe and very important to get children back in school even before they are vaccinated. Now, with the community rates going down, we hope, after the holidays, because mm -hmm. we're seeing that trend right now, and with vaccines, it'll be even safer because there'll be less spread in the community. But Hold on, what's that? They expect community the rates to go down after the holiday? That doesn't really jive. And it's certainly not what we heard from the U.S. Surgeon General, who's also a member of the task force, on this week, take a listen. Says that 7 million people were screened in the week leading up uh, to Christmas. Uh, are you concerned that we're going to see yet another post-holiday surge? Well, we're very concerned, and we always see a little bit of a bump after holidays and sometimes a large bump. So which is it? Is the task force very concerned about a potentially large bump in cases? Or, as General Giroir says... Are they expecting it to be even safer after the holidays? 
because community rates, he says, are going down. That That's just wildly, wildly different messaging. It's literally the complete opposite messaging. And there was also some misinformation related to the new and potentially concerning virus mutation that's happened in the United Kingdom and the efforts being taken to reduce travel from the UK that go into effect very shortly. And we all learned last week that these these new travel restrictions were coming into place, that people would need to be tested 72 hours before they got on a plane from the UK beginning, I think it's today is when that begins. But then on the Sunday shows, they they said, well, this, you know, the members of the task force said, this isn't really a big deal. We already have a lot of precautions in place to reduce spread from the UK. UK trips, you know, flights from the UK have gone down by 90%, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, which is it? Are we concerned about this or are we not concerned about this? Are these measures going to be effective or are they, are they not effective? Just this inconsistent messaging and, and painting of the picture of where we are, where we're going to be, where we need to be. All of those things have, there's just such a cloud of gray that is being presented by these leaders. And it's it's really unacceptable at this point. It's unacceptable. And truthfully, it's surprising this type of circular rhetoric is still happening. Yeah. Like, Jesus, you and I have been following the news so closely. I mean, literally forever, but especially <laughs> this year have followed week after week the advice, the suggestions, the warnings, the predictions of the coronavirus. And it's we're always surprised by people who are holding on to information that's three, five, six weeks old, right? Mm -hmm. Who are saying, well, Dr. Fauci said it. And it's like, well, that was two months ago. Things have really changed. Well, even Trump has said that, right? Fauci said not to wear a mask. Right, exactly. And so not everybody watches the news like we do. So, of course, the science is going to change and evolve. But to change this quickly, this far into the pandemic, is, is really jeopardizing your whole reputation. And, and the trust that is already, like, shattered and barely holding on. Yeah, I mean, if you watched Fox News Sunday today, you would think community rates are going down, and that's what they're expecting and hoping for after the holidays. And if you watched this week, you would think they're concerned about a large bump. And this would be coming from members of the task force. You would have wildly different expectations for what things look like and maybe thoughts on how you should conduct yourself with the rest of the holiday that is happening, you know, with New Year's coming up. Right. And so if you have family members who watch one show and you watch another, you might have different strategies on what is required to be safe. So it's definitely very, very frustrating. And that kind of brings me to my something to say about journalism moment. All right. In that I want to talk about Dr. Gottlieb. So Dr. Scott Gottlieb has been on Face the Nation. I double-checked every single Sunday since March 1st. So that's 42 Sundays. Wow. That he has been on. And Margaret Brennan kind of acknowledged this asset that she has in her interview today with Dr. Gottlieb. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, I I mean, she just, you know, I'll get into it in just a second. But in thinking of kind of what we were just talking about, Brendan, about how within the same week, people from the task force can give 
different information. It is such a value for Face the Nation to have had the same person on to give his perspective. And it's such a stabilizing force. Like at one point, I think like in May, we're like, oh, like what? what's going on? Or you know, like we've made so many jokes about yeah, Dr. Gottlieb yeah. on Face the Nation. But in all honesty, like it's something that Face the Nation can truly brag about. Yeah. And no sets their coverage apart from the other Sunday shows. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are other people who have been on the shows. There's members of the task force, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, you know, Dr. Jawah. Dr. Adams, there's outside public health officials. We've seen especially Dr. Michael Osterholm. He's an infectious disease expert from the University of Minnesota. We've seen Dr. Tim. And he's now on uh, Biden's COVID advisory board. Oh, yeah. Dr. Osterholm is, yeah, he's kind of on giving advice to, to Biden. And we've seen Dr. Tom Inglesby. He's the director of the Center for Health Security of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. I mean, These are all experts in their field, for sure. But they've kind of bounced around. Dr. Gottlieb has been on Face the Nation, like I said, every single week. and it's amazing. It 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 really is amazing. It truly is. And so, you know, Margaret Brennan can say, hey, in May, you said this. Are we out where you thought we'd be in the fall? Last week, you said, you know, Z. Does that still hold true? Like, there's the conversation is a continued year-long conversation yeah yeah. and that is incredible and unique it's very unique for the sunday shows we've never seen that before i mean they cut the panel right yeah they immediately cut the panel and gave dr gottlieb (laughs) six to eight minutes every week yeah or maybe like four to seven minutes yeah but it just goes to show that there is a role for outside expert leaders on these Sunday shows and that they can do it in a very transparent way, in a very reliable way. And I just found so so much value. So here's a few examples from today's show. First, I just kind of want to start off with Margaret Brennan's thank you at the end of the interview. Good point. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you as always for your analysis. And before you go, I do want to uh, thank you. The whole team wants to thank you for helping to guide our viewers and us through this crisis. And we want to thank your wife and your family for sacrificing your Sunday mornings so that you can join us here. We'll see you next year. Thanks. Yeah. (laughs) That's nice. Yeah. Thanks from the Seidel Soto household as well. (laughs) Like we just... If you've been following the show, you just like really appreciate it. So that's kind of first and foremost. I thought it was a really nice gesture. For yeah, Margaret for a Brennan. split second listening to that, I was like, wait, is that it? Is this contract like, up? No. no. <laughs> but she's like, we'll hear from you next year, which is next week. Yeah, exactly. And then there's two other clips that I thought were just reflective of Dr. Gottlieb's value and insight. The first is Dr. Gottlieb explaining the latest round of numbers and really kind of putting truth to power in terms of about President Trump's comments about the rise of COVID in California. The president tweeted this morning, cases in California have risen despite the lockdown, yet Florida and others are open and doing well. He seems to be encouraging the lifting of local restrictions. Is that medically advisable? Well, look, Florida had 17,000 cases on the 26th. They have around 21,000 deaths now. I think the fourth highest in the country in terms of the number of COVID deaths and the third highest in terms of the number of um, total cases. It is true that California is having a worse epidemic right now, although there's some signs that 
um, the epidemic may be plateauing in Northern California. I don't think any part of the country has really done especially well with COVID. Every state has grappled with this. And so I wouldn't be trying to make you know, comparisons between different states in terms of how they've approached this. Every state has had to approach it differently because they've all had different challenges. Um, some states are far more dense, like California, than other states. Florida, too, is dense, and I think that's why they're experiencing a very difficult uh, epidemic right now. So Florida's not out of the woods by a long shot. How Dr. Gottlieb is able to remember all the data points and in particular the rankings of all the states <laughs> yeah, is yeah. really impressive. But again, like, Dr. Gottlieb was in the Trump administration before. He has a lot of colleagues and people who value his insight who are in the Trump administration, and he can kind of give it to you straight. And I really appreciate that in terms of kind of being a, a truth teller and in explaining the latest data and numbers. The other piece that I really like about today's interview with Dr. Gottlieb is another important explanation that I think we often we too often still don't see in the COVID coverage, and two, how a bit of transparency helps us absorb new information. So take a listen to this part of the interview in which Dr. Gottlieb is explaining why it's one, likely that the new strain of COVID that has been found in the UK is probably here in the US already, and two, why we have no idea the extent of the possible spread. Canada is now saying that it has detected evidence of that new strain of coronavirus on its shores. That means it's here in North America. Um, the U.S. is set to begin requiring those coming from the United Kingdom where this is thought to have originated, uh, and, and people will have to be tested within 72 hours of arrival. Is that going to make any impact? Well, I think it's probably here in the United States, and, and it could be here in um, a reasonable number at this point. We're, we don't sequence a lot of um, samples in this country, and a lot of that sequencing that does get done gets done in private labs and doesn't get aggregated into public database. That needs, databases. That needs to be fixed. In the UK, they're sequencing about 10% of all the samples. Here, we're doing a fraction of 1%. I'm on a board of Illumina, one of the companies that's involved in sequencing. We probably need a better approach to more systematically sequence strains in the United States to track changes and new variants in this virus. We're not doing that. And so we probably wouldn't be detecting it if it was here in sort of low numbers, which I suspect it is. So maybe here we just don't know it. Um, so shocking to me that I can still be mad about the state of testing and basic understanding of this virus. But here we are. But uh, the, the last piece of, of Dr. Gottlieb that I wanted to describe is He's on some other, you know, science board, some other science company. And with, a, like I said, with a bit of transparency, it doesn't hurt. Like, it just helps you absorb new information, new explanation. And if he hadn't kind of shared that he's on the board of Illumina, in a month from now, if it came out, it'd be like, oh, well, maybe, you know, there'd be a whole angle of trying to understand about like why don't we know about sequencing or what is about this company or whatever like he kind of nips it in the butt and just like oh i'm on the board but this is what i can tell you and this is the state of sequencing in this country it's almost like he's on the he you know he's on the board of pfizer which developed the vaccine the, the first, first one. vaccine he's on the board of illumina which is important in gene sequencing and sequencing of the virus right and i'm kind of like 
what other boards is he part of so we can understand where the story is going, going in next, a few months? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's already on the board of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> he's on the he's on the board of Oreo. We're like, hold on. Is there going to be some cookie related? I'm here for it. Cookie, c- a cookie vaccine. <laughs> so <laughs> deliver the vaccine through cookies. I don't know. That'd be your dream. Whatever works. <laughs> I do want to note there is there is some talk that there's a possibility that you could have a vaccine that could be contagious and that people could share the vaccine as they would share a virus. Now, there's this vaccine isn't like that at all. There's been no vaccine that's actually done that, but they're looking into it because it could be very effective during a pandemic because you wouldn't have to, you know, get everyone to show up and deliver Well, and especially and if you think of like in developing nations, right, right where Absolutely. the vaccine distribution is very, very yep. difficult. So it's a very fascinating idea. However, there's lots of ethical issues, right? Because now you consent to a vaccine and certainly you wouldn't consent oh, that's if so you just happen to pick it up. So yeah, that's yeah. that's a big that's a big question. So so anyway, I, I don't want to kind of go on and on about Dr. Gottlieb. We've been literally talking about him all year, but it's just such an important counter, right, to some of your frustrations in terms of varying Absolutely. Information. Yes. Here we have literally the same person giving it to us straight for forty plus weeks. Well, and when you think about other topics that we could have people like oh that on. Oh my gosh, now, yes. You know, I feel like back in the days of John Dickerson, Anthony Salvanto served that role related to polls and where the political landscape was. And then we do have, you know, a lot of these networks will lean on different correspondents to provide insight, but it's not as consistent. They're not there every day. Yeah. And like, think about how hard ABC News has leaned on Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel, right? Like, that's their, like... Those are their pocket power aces players. in their pocket. Those two guys. Yep. I mean, ugh, to have to to think that that's going to be your well of insight that you want to go back to over and over and over again for your audience is mind boggling. When you could have someone, obviously they they have different expertise, right? Doctor Gottlieb is a doctor. He was the former FDA commissioner or whatever, but. It goes to show you how CBS values each minute and what they're trying to hand to you. And values expertise, right? right. Not politics. That's the problem with Rahm Emanuel, Chris Christie, or like we saw on the panel, you know, with Chuck Todd related to these Biden clips. Two members of that panel were former Republican or Democratic representatives. And so you get this sort of, they're kind of, providing insight but they're also playing for their team still right exactly. and that becomes really frustrating because you don't get to the truth mm, exactly so things you realize when you follow the show as close as we do is the voices that are there the voices that are respected the voices that are celebrated and the voices that are dismissed yeah okay Brenda, we've gone longer than i thought we were going to go on here what do you have in terms of journalistic moment so for me it was very short very simple But it was something that Chuck Todd said in relation to Joe Biden and the types of questions that might be asked of Joe Biden as he enters the presidency. Like, what about re-election as the oldest president ever? On the issue of the re-election, how does Joe Biden avoid the constant, well, will he or won't he, and also avoid being a lame duck? He'll probably avoid um, doing a lot of shows where people 
um, will be focused on that. Uh, I, I think he's going <laughs> to really just refuse to even go there. Um, I, I, I don't think it would be very smart for him to even discuss it. He's got two years of work ahead of him where he's got to get some stuff done. There's plenty of time for that later. The, by right. the way, Chuck, the American people this year of all years are really right. sick of politics. Oh, yes. That I get. I won't be asking the question for two years. That I promise you. Uh, thanks to all of you. Wow. I don't think we've ever heard a host say, I'm not going to ask this really important pertinent question for this time period because I don't think it's appropriate yet. I think that's that's a very interesting, interesting statement and an interesting policy. Well, it's one thing to have it and another thing to share it, right? And, uh, you know, it, it really... I'm not surprised, frankly, because Chuck Todd, you know, based on when we interviewed him and everything you hear if you listen to his Chuck Todd cast, is that he does think very deeply about what's appropriate or, or what he, what's the right thing to ask, when is the right time to ask it, and these types of like rules of the road. And giving himself that rule of not asking it for two years is a very interesting, interesting place to go. And I know that we've sometimes been frustrated every time a certain person who might run for president is on the Sunday shows and every time they might be asked, you know, are you planning for a run in 2024? I mean, for example, Larry Hogan was on multiple shows today. It's pretty obvious that he's preparing for a run, a possible run in 2024 for president, Larry Hogan, the uh, Republican governor from Maryland. But no one asked him it. And I kind of appreciated that to some extent. To the other extent, it's like, well, but you're also here to... Do you have another motive, right? Right. Well, people were talking about that with Kasich. Oh, And my it was God. like, pr- Trump was just inaugurated six, eight months ago. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? And he never ran, right? He never ran. He didn't do it. So it was just, that was all, those are all just wasted discussions. And things, exactly. as we know in politics, change so much so fast that even if they answered today, it might not be true tomorrow. But, which is fine, but... In terms of the Kasich example, what would have been more interesting, it's like, well, what are you doing for your party right now? Mm-hmm. Right? How, you know, you're part of a dying part of the Republican Party. Like, or, who, who or, are you working with? Or, or an ember that isn't as bright as Romney would argue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like he did last week. But that would have been a way more interesting conversation to think about the different strands of the Republican Party rather than who's going to run against, who's going to primary the president, you know? Very true. All right, Naomi, on to politics. Let's be quick about it. I think we have something very similar, so maybe we'll do a combined combined go here. Yeah, so mine was about Republicans criticizing Trump. And mine is about Republicans. It says Republicans clash with Trump. So you said criticize, I said clash. And no, largely, that's very different. Largely, <laughs> this was around President Trump's... At the time. Yeah, refusal to quickly sign the COVID relief slash omnibus spending package. This was the COVID relief bill that we had been talking about for months. I think nine months, five months, something insane. And also they combined it with the regular government spending bill that's needed to avert a government shutdown that would happen this week. Right. So at the time of recording, President Trump finally did sign that bill. But this morning he had not and he wanted to increase the direct payments to 
struggling Americans from $600 to $2,000. Well, to all Americans who make below a certain income threshold. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, that's what I mean by struggling Americans, specifically an income threshold. Mm -hmm. But it should be pointed out that Trump, by refusing to sign this immediately, resulted in a lapse in people's unemployment benefits this week could potentially delay those payments an additional week from getting to people, delay PPP loans from getting out to people, and also just like was a terrible look for him and the Republican Party. Yeah. So I saw this comment come out directly in an interview that was on State of the Union, again, hosted by Dana Bash. She spoke with Republican Adam Kinzinger. He's a Republican from Illinois. He's kind of part of the Chicago suburbs. And... Like this is this man's like a Republican through and through. Like he's anti the Affordable Care Act. He's like pro guns. He is like very pro military. He, you know, just he's a Republican. Like he's part of the Republican Party. And yet his disdain for this recent hesitancy by President Trump was so crystal clear. And I was really surprised as to how he criticized both President Trump and Republicans, his colleagues, who were placating the president. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, stimulus bill that uh, President Trump is demanding Congress revise to increase the size of stimulus checks to $2,000. Again, your leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, he blocked an effort by Democrats to do just that earlier. Senate Republicans have said that number is a non-starter. Meanwhile, unemployed Americans lost benefits as of last night because President Trump has not signed the bill. So what do you think is going to happen next? So this just shows the the chaos of the whole thing. I was on a call with Secretary Mnuchin, and he had talked about getting to this point, having negotiated, uh, presumably on behalf of the President of the United States. That was his person at the table. They came to an agreement. I mean, none of us totally like the bill. It's the nature of uh, legislating. You're not going to end up with anything perfect. But we passed it because this was the agreed upon number. It's what the president negotiated. And then for him to come out and say, now I'm going to veto it for the $2,000 checks, fine. If you want to make it $2,000 checks, negotiate that from the beginning. Let's have the discussion after this bill is signed, because right now we're at a point where people are left out in the dark. But to play this old switcheroo game, which is just kind of like, I don't get the point. I don't understand what's being done. Why? Unless it's just to create chaos and show power and and be upset because you lost the election. Otherwise, I don't understand it because this just has to get done. Too many people are relying on this. We have worked hard. We should have had this done a lot earlier. And now to be put in a lurch after the president's own person negotiated something that the president doesn't want. uh, It's just it's it's surprising, but we'll have to find a way out. Wow. Yeah, that was very direct. Yeah, there's no there's no hiding. Yeah. His shock, his disdain, his general WTFness of of this whole charade. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I heard something very similar from Senator Pat Toomey, the Republican senator from the state of Pennsylvania. Take a listen to how he talked about this. And this was on Fox News Sunday. Do you worry we're heading for a government shutdown, sir? I really don't know. I think the uh, president has not actually explicitly said he's going to veto this bill. I take that as a hopeful sign. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think as he leaves office, he will. uh, I understand he wants to be remembered for advocating for big checks, but uh, 
the danger is he'll be he'll, he'll be remembered for chaos and, and misery and erratic behavior if uh, if he allows this to expire. So I think the best thing to do, as I say, sign this and then make the case for um, subsequent legislation. So he's got Senator Toomey has this very casual voice about him, but he literally said that Trump will be remembered for chaos and misery <laughs> if he doesn't sign this check. I mean, that's that's a big deal. <laughs> later on in that interview, and I don't have a clip for it, but later on in that interview, Senator Toomey is very explicit about why he's against $2,000 checks. And, it, you know, they're not carrying the water for the president on this one at all. You know, Republicans are just, they've had it, and they're like, this is this is the bill, and you better freaking sign it. And he actually did. Well, tonight. yeah, President Trump eventually did. There's so many things to be frustrated here, right? If you're a Republican and you want to get this over with and the president is holding you back and, and you don't know whether to stand with your party or to kind of work, move forward with what has already been decided. What I saw from an interview that Dana Bash had with Governor Hogan and also Governor Gretchen Whitmer on State of the Union was this kind of additional layer of frustration as to trying to understand why the president is not willing to fight for things that are supposedly so important to him when it would be appropriate to do so. And Governor Hogan, just staying with you, something very much related to this uh, vaccine effort, uh, something that will help fund it, is this $900 billion bill that's sitting in Mar-a-Lago and the president is threatening to torpedo. It's a big coronavirus relief package. And uh, what he is saying is, Congress should amend it and dramatically increase direct payments due to Americans. Do you agree with the president? Should those payments be increased or should he just sign it now? Well, so first of all, I think that if the president thought that that was the case, he should have weighed in eight months ago. Uh, we've been fighting for this since March or April, uh, or at least eight days ago, and not after they finally reached agreement. But sure, I mean, we have been pushing for a larger relief bill. Uh, both Governor Whitman and I both, the NGA, uh, all the governors were pushing for help for state and local governments, which we're still not getting in this package. We'd like to see more help get out to the struggling small businesses and the, the folks that are uh, unemployed and, and need, need this money desperately. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, this took a long time, eight months of, of uh, dysfunction and divisiveness in Congress. There's plenty of blame to go around, but now we've reached an agreement at least on something. It's not enough. Uh, but it's a step in the right direction. We need to get it done. Paycheck protection uh, plan ran out in July. You know, tomorrow, unemployment benefits run out. So sign the bill, get it done. And then if the president wants to push for more, let's get that done too. Let's work together in a bipartisan way. It'd be a great way for him to end the administration. Yeah, so everybody saying, we even had it on this week, Bernie Sanders, Senator Sanders saying, sign this bill. And yeah, let's do something more later, but sign the bill. Basically sign the damn bill. I mean, when you have all these Republicans and Bernie Sanders saying, sign the bill, come on. How would you think Steve Mnuchin's weekend was like this oh week? Oh my God. <laughs> part of me says it was he was scrambling like crazy and his staff was running around. And the other part of me is like, he just unplugged his phone and was just like, I'm done. Yeah, this man's going to agree tomorrow. Fine, whatever. Yeah. But this wasn't the only thing that Republicans were clashing with Trump on recently. There was a defense spending bill that has been signed by every president ever for like 50 years. And Donald Trump 
vetoed that last week. And now the Senate is expected on Tuesday to come back and override his veto. Big deal there. And then the pardons that took place over the last week that have been just insane, including pardons of war criminals responsible for murdering innocent children and politicians who were indicted. It's just crazy. But we heard Republicans pushing back on it, which when these pardons happened, I I had to think to myself, I was like, how is somebody, how are they defending this? That's what I don't understand. How can you defend this? Well, a lot of Republicans aren't defending it. They're not happy with it either. Take a listen to, again, Republican Senator Pat Toomey on Fox News Sunday. And also pay attention to what the host of Fox News Sunday is asking and how he's asking it. President Trump pardoned some former campaign aides, former GOP congressmen, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner's father, former Blackwater security operatives, your colleague, Senator Ben Sass, saying, quote, this is rotten to the core. While the president certainly has the power, do you disagree with how he's using it? Uh, In some cases, I do. I think the case of Mike Flynn, for instance, was completely legitimate to pardon him because the prosecution was a abuse of power. I don't think Michael Flynn ever committed a crime. Uh, But some of these other cases, I mean, my goodness, we have tax fraud and bank fraud, witness tampering, obstruction of justice. Uh, But because they were close to the president, they got pardoned. This is uh, unfortunately reminiscent of the Mark Rich pardon by President Clinton. Uh, It is legal, it is constitutional, but I think it's a misuse of the power. My goodness, he says, a misuse of the power from a Republican senator. I mean, I think that's that's meaningful. And finally, there is this oncoming train that is approaching all of us when the Congress certifies the Electoral College results. And this famously has been a very public moment when the sitting vice president has to announce who has been certified to be the next president of the United States. Famously, Al Gore had to gavel down Democrats who who were members of the Senate and wanted to support him as the president instead of George W. Bush. And Al Gore had to announce as they played on the panel of uh, on this week that he had to say, you know, Bush is the one who won. But there's an upcoming moment where Pence is going to have to do the same thing. And this was discussed in detail on the panel of this week. We hear from, no surprise, Chris Christie in this clip. And we also hear from Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster. So, Governor Christie, my question to you is, obviously the next vice president in line to count those votes is Mike Pence on January 6th. Does Donald Trump understand that that is a purely ceremonial job and that Pence has no choice but to announce that Donald Trump lost? It it doesn't sound like it, uh, John, from some of the tweets and other comments the president has made. Um, But I'm hopeful that the vice president understands that and will execute his constitutional duties on January 6th and announce the votes as they've been cast uh, by the electors based upon the votes that were cast by the American people in each one of uh, the 50 states. This is as close as to Chris Christie being able to say, nah, nah, bro. No, does it work that way? (laughs) It doesn't sound like 
Trump understands that this is just ceremonial. Now, here's the quote by Luntz. What, what, what do you think? Do you think this does, Frank, lasting damage to the, uh, to, to the Pence-Trump relationship? I mean, Pence has never uttered a word critical of this president, but now he will be the public face announcing the finality of these results. Well, it's going to impact him. 53% of Trump voters, half, think that Donald Trump still won this election after all the evidence to the contrary. And those people are going to be mad as heck on January 6th when Pence makes that statement. And so the challenge for the vice president is that he clearly would like to seek the office in four years. Trump is clearly going to be agitated with him. And I think that this is the beginning of a very painful period for the Republicans in Washington and across the country. Just setting up that moment and seeing how the vice president is just hurtling towards this nightmare moment where he must say the worst, deliver the worst, most final news to President Trump. And Trump does not seem to be the type of person who's like, oh, I don't want to kill the messenger. No, he wants to kill the messenger. Yeah, <laughs> right. he, he's yeah. ready to kill the messenger. He's very ready for that. Bad news, it's like, <laughs> for him, it's like, the question if the tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it does it make a sound he's like of course it doesn't make a sound if i don't hear it it doesn't make a sound right if i don't read it if i don't say it it's not true it doesn't happen he's like george costanza from seinfeld oh it's my gosh of course it could not be the last episode of the <laughs> year for polylog without one more seinfeld reference brendan it's not a lie if you believe it <laughs> <laughs> That's dark. <laughs> so lots of clashes with Republicans in the waning days of the Trump presidency. Well, another meaty, meaty episode, Brendan. But I think we covered a lot of aspects from all five shows. And I think... Holy cow, a lot of aspects. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely going to be digesting some of this for the next few days. But that takes us to show ratings. Yep. So many little tiny changes. I know. They're very small tweaks. But they feel so big at our Yes. <laughs> okay, so let rapid fire style. I'll say the show that you watched and you give the rating. On a 10 point scale. Yes, although we did get some feedback on the... Okay, well, after the ratings, we'll talk about just general feedback we received. <sighs> this week. Oh, I was so ready with Meet the Press. So this week. This week, hmm... I would say that this week was probably an eight. Wow. Okay. That's pretty impressive. I, I think Jonathan Carl did a pretty good job. Uh, the All right, Naomi, what about State of the Union with Dana Bash? You know, I thought Dana Bash did a pretty good job. She had, I didn't have time to talk about it, but two progressive Congress representatives, especially Cori Bush, who I am so excited to be able to follow her career Super thrilled to have her on the Sunday show already. She is an activist from Ferguson. And so I thought that was really, I, I don't know, I think she was just kind of had some interesting angles that she was exploring. So I think I would give State of the Union a seven. How about Meet the Press? I really liked their clips, you know, their episode, what direction they went. And it wasn't just about Biden. There was a look back at people who were lost during the year including oh, right. Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg, including John Lewis, Herman Cain. But there was also kind of a, a, a special segment. It almost felt like the equivalent of 
the uh, Jake Tapper outrage corner. Uh-huh. But it was done so much more in such a more nuanced way. Of course. And, and it was like a special segment about presidents conceding. And rather than Chuck Todd delivering a, you know, five-minute monologue about it or diatribe about it in the case, as we've seen from Jake Tapper, it was just a bunch of clips and kind of like narrating through the history of presidential concessions and, and some very interesting facts about that it. That must have been so much fun to like research. Yeah, yeah. So I really appreciate it. So anyway, overall, I was really happy. Obviously, they didn't cover any pressing news, but I think you're... It's generally, the last episode. Generally, of the year. you're allowed to do that in your last episode of the year where things are quieter. This was a particularly newsy week, right? So it's a little harder. So I think I'm going to give them a nine on it. <laughs> Way to really show them a lesson. <laughs> it was it was an overall very strong episode. Naomi, the final episode that you watched this week was Face the Nation. What Correct. would you give Face the Nation? I think I would give Face the Nation an eight. Maybe if I was you, I would give it a nine, but I mean, so I'm giving it an eight. And I thought overall the show was really well done. There were, there was no interview that I thought overall was weak. There were weak moments in certain segments, but I thought each segment had value. So I think that is the biggest thing that I'm taking away. And your last show, Brendan, Fox News Sunday, what do you give Fox News Sunday today? Fox News Sunday was generally pretty darn good. I Interesting. mean, I think I'd have to give it a, like um, maybe an eight and a half. <laughs> eight and a half. Okay. <laughs> and I, I do want to point out, they closed out with like a look back at Power Players of the Week. Oh, interesting. And I approached it with the thought of like, can we just retire this up, this thing, you know? I was, yeah, like... Because we've had some bad ones. Truly. Over the last, you know, over this and year. And repeats. But then it reminded me of like some of the good ones. You know, they focused on the good ones. They know what the good they ones are. The good they ones know what are. the good ones are. You know, when Ben Folds is singing the song about Chris Wallace, the Chris Wallace song. Yeah, Remember yeah, that? yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. So I was like, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Real be back in. Yeah. Well, that's it for today's episode. I just quick, quick, quick. Quick uh, couple of comments about some of the feedback we received the last few weeks. One, the ratings of when I was frustrated at our decimal use, which, sorry, this is who we are. Yep. <laughs> That's how it goes. Yeah. Um, there was uh, quite a few texts and emails about our cursing episode. That was generally positive. We didn't hear anybody yeah, who didn't like I it. I know. It, I think we were, one, like, shocked. But two, like, also interesting impressions about what, like, how they use language. So, you know, especially the the Mormon grandma who uses her language or uses profanity very, very selectively. Like, A plus email. Thank you so much. Well, and that's how I generally live my life. And... When we, when I said <laughs> I those, not. when I said those words, close friend of ours, also listener, also somebody who does not like the ratings that, you know, with the decimal point, <laughs> yeah. quite a trifecta of a person <laughs> said to me, I don't think I've ever heard such a thing. Yeah. You know, but that's the thing. When you save it, it hits. It hits. Yeah. And if you don't save it, what, what will hit? You don't have Everybody's that firepower. Got- well, no, that's not true. It's that hard. Is, that's absolutely not true. One, everyone has firepower that they use in different ways. And some people use a selection of certain words to describe that firepower. But two. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What, what words do you turn to? 
there might be other words or there might be other way you say things. Also, eyebrows go a long way in my book. It's not just like the words that are said. It's how you visually look. That's true. That's true. Which doesn't come across in the podcast. I got to say one more thing on this. So you, you say we're going to do something quick and then it's not it's quick. It's impossible. But Jerry Seinfeld. No, okay? no. Hold on. Listen. You had one ah, more Seinfeld no, no, no. This isn't about the show. This isn't about the show. It's about his stand-up. Oh, that he doesn't. Famously, he doesn't use curse words. Neither does Will Smith in his rapping. And not, and not, and not F word, the F word in good. particular. And he said, the reason he said he does this is that he used to use it because uh-huh. lots of comics do and it can be very effective get lots of laughs and then he thought to himself hold on are they laughing at the joke or are they laughing at the word and so he removed the word from the joke and they weren't laughing and they weren't laughing and he said oh i'm just using this as a crutch crutch right and and that's kind of cheap it kind of cheapens it it's and lazy it's lazy and so he said you know what i'm not going to go for the lazy joke i'm going to go for the real joke and so he doesn't use it. Yeah. Very interesting. Interesting way to, to, to approach it. So language, very interesting. In general, we've gotten some really interesting feedback and high fives and just appreciation for the new structure. So... And sorry to uh, those who say, I'm glad that you've, uh, you know, kept the next one to uh, like an hour because that's, <laughs> that's about as much as I can do. Sorry. <laughs> We're trying. We fail <laughs> every week. listened all the way through to this, sorry. <laughs> but you can always just stop, you know. You, you know, you start a timer on your watch and be like, you know what, I'm only giving you guys an hour. Sorry. That's fine. We're, okay, we got to get out of here. This year needs to end. This, we're prolonging this year even more. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this is the last of 2020. Goodbye. Goodbye, 2020. See ya. As I might say, fuck you, 2020. <laughs> okay. That's right. it. That's the last time I'm using it because now I'm going to water it down. I think 2020 deserves it. All right. If you want to send more feedback to us. <laughs> you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at Beastidle on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sodonaomi underscore. And you can follow the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone. Have a happy and safe New Year's. The safest New Year's of your life. You can, you can make that choice now to be safe. Do it now. Just be safe. Yeah. No pressure. And we'll see you in the new year. 2021. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to say 2021. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.